If you have a Bible, would you like to turn to Mark chapter 11? It being Palm Sunday, one of those uh, Sundays in the year when probably lots of churches are looking at the same sort of passage, um, whether it's from Matthew, Mark, or Luke, or, or in fact John. But um, Palm Sunday, preparation for the week that will end with both Good Friday, which was in fact a very bad Friday, wasn't it really? Except we know the story, so we call it Good Friday. And, and comes through a deep pit in the Easter Saturday. We don't hear anything about that, but that was a bad day, wasn't it? That was a bad day. And then, of course, Easter Day. I was reading a book by a theologian who said, we as Christians ought to really celebrate... Sorry about that split infinitive. Really to celebrate Easter Day with champagne and all sorts of things. So I don't know what you've got organised for next week with the children. I don't suppose it's champagne breakfast, but anyway, that sort of thing would be wonderful, to celebrate Easter as it ought to be. Anyway, we're in Mark 11, verse 1. A group of men were sitting in a sauna discussing business and stocks when suddenly a cell phone rings. Hi, honey, are you at the club? Yes, dear. Honey, you won't believe this, but I'm standing in front of Giovanni's and there's a beautiful mink on sale in the window. How much is it, dear? They're giving it away. It's only $5,000. Can you believe it? But you already have fur coats. Please, dear, it's absolutely exquisite. Fine, fine, go ahead and buy it. Thank you, sweetheart. Oh, not to keep you much longer, but I passed by the Mercedes dealership this morning and saw their new convertible. It was to die for. I talked to the salesman and the one in the showroom is brand new, leather seats, power everything, gold coloured. What do you think? Honey, come on, we already have cars. But you promised me I could have a convertible. How much is it? You won't believe it, but he said he'd have, let it, he let us have it for $85,000, fully loaded with all the options. Okay, okay, go ahead and buy it. Oh, I love you. You're the best husband a wife could ask for. I hope I'm not pushing it, but remember the trip we took to Paris? Remember the Browns place with the swimming pool, tennis courts? It's on the market. I saw it this morning at the real estate agency. And if we bought it, we would have a perfect place to stay during the cold winter months. Actually, I thought about that. You say it's on the market. Really? You'd actually thought about it? Well, can I go and make an offer on it? You know it's not listed very high and it would be perfect for our type of lifestyle. How much is it on the market for? Only $425,000, sweetheart. It's a steal. Okay, I guess we've got money put away. Go ahead and make an offer, but no more than 400000 This is turning out to be a great day. Can't wait to see you later tonight to celebrate. See you tonight, dear. And the chap puts down the cell phone and then says, Okay, so whose phone is this? <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with what I can talk about, but I thought it was a good joke, didn't you? It's a good joke. Jesus is a joker, isn't he? He played a joke on Palm Sunday, didn't he? Really unexpected thing. Well, jokes aren't always funny, are they? They're just sometimes whimsical. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. 
untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They, sent, they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. He sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. John says in his preamble to his gospel that Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And that's what's happening here. The first ten chapters of Mark give us, roughly speaking, three years of Jesus' life. But the last five chapters, half of that, cover just one week. So as the gospel goes through, the pace slows right down as you get to this point. It's as if you're panning across history and as you get to this point in time, the camera pan slows right down and you get much more detail. Clearly, we're getting to the bit that's most important. Many have said before that the Gospels are basically the passion narrative, the events about Easter, with varying lengths of introduction. They're all introducing this particular thing. We need to pay close attention to what is going on. And this week is often a very reflective week for Christians, whatever denomination you come from. Some will be measuring it day and uh, by day, morning and evening sometimes. Many will do celebrations on Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, even marches of witness on Saturday or Sunday. Um, trying to enjoy, if that's the right word, this moment as it comes to this point in history. When Paul wants to explain what sort of first importance in connection with the gospel by which his readers have been saved, he writes to the Corinthians, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He says the matter of first importance is that Jesus died. He did a lot of good things while he was here. He taught some wonderful stuff. He delivered people from all kinds of terrible situations. But principally, and mostly, and firstly, he came to die. Which sounds perverse, doesn't it? It sounds crazy. Until you know the history of the world, which is why we have our Old Testament, because that gives us God's take on the history of the world. And we realise what the crying need is for mankind is that someone, someone will set us free from the sin that we've got ourselves wrapped up into. So God's been working this plan out from before the beginning of time. When Peter writes to the people dispersed, he says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of time, but was revealed in these days for your sake. When God chose Abraham and through him the descendants of the Jews, he intended to bless all the nations. He's been working to this point all the way through. The setting up of a nation, the Jews, in a land 
with a capital city and a place of worship and godly leadership was all intended to bring us to this particular point so that men and women, boys and girls, people from any nation, tribe, people and tongue might be drawn to God. And Jesus comes as a Jew to the Jews to bring about God's intentions for the world. So all this is happening in a capital city tucked away in a small country to the east of us. It's actually something that's changing the world. If you were to go to, if you, if you were to see a map of the world, one of those ones laid out, since um, two-thirds of the world is water, or whatever it is, anyway, as you go around the globe, the Pacific almost occupies the entire half. We usually open up the world the other way around. When you do it that way, it goes from, as it were, America in the west, which is my west, not your west, and um, to China in the east. And slap bang in the middle, right at the junction point, almost east-west, almost north-south, is this little tiny place called the Promised Land. Right in the centre, where everything joins together. So there is one man on a little donkey walking into a capital city, tucked away in a totally nondescript country. But it's not just, as it were, figuratively, but really something's happening that will affect the heart of the world. Jesus Messiah, because that's what his name is, we've come to think of Jesus Christ almost as if Christ was his surname, haven't it? You know, Charles Erica, Jesus Christ, you know, like that. It's actually his title. Jesus Messiah, he is the anointed one. And he received his anointing at his baptism when the spirit came down and the father from heaven proclaimed him to be the anointed one. He demonstrates his messianic status by what he's done, by preaching powerful messages, by calling disciples to him, by healing loads of people, by exercising demons from folk, all of which testify to his authority. And although the people who encounter Jesus only gradually get a picture of who he is, the constant demonstrations eventually make people realise who he is. Peter, when asked by Jesus who he thinks he is, confesses that he's the Christ. And now he's set on a journey from Galilee that's taken him all the way to Jerusalem and he's coming into the capital city, the nation's capital, and to the focus of their attention, the temple itself. It sounds almost like a, a throwaway line. Jesus entered, entered the temple, entered Jerusalem, went around the temple, couldn't find any trinkets to buy, so he went out again. That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? You know, it's like a tourist visit. But it's not. It's not. He's coming to the heart of this nation. You remember in the days of David who wanted with all his heart to build a temple for God. One of the first things that David did when he became king was to get the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city because he wanted the presence of God right at the heart. So the temple represents that. And Jesus coming is coming to the heart of the Jewish people. And what were they expecting? It catches you by surprise. Because the atmosphere must have been electric. This is the run-up to the Passover feast, the great feast 
I mean, there were three great feasts, but the Passover tipped the others into a little bit of the shadow because it really did speak of their rescue from Egypt. The people are intoxicated with the expectation of the coming kingdom. Jesus has been talking about the coming kingdom, been speaking in a wonderful way. And there's that buzz around. Is this the one that we were expecting to come? Could he be the one? The confusion, of course, is they weren't quite sure who they were expecting. If you ask some, they would expect uh, a person like David to come. Others were expecting the suffering servant of Isaiah to come. And they couldn't quite see that those two went together because they seemed to be mutually exclusive. So it wasn't clear, but they were euphoric. There was a real buzz in the air. When they remembered the Passover each year, they didn't say, Father, thank you for what you did to them then. They would say, thank you, Father, for what you did for us now. They lived it. And this is a high moment of their time. It's hugely significant for them. And as they gather now to celebrate their national deliverance under Moses from Egypt's slavery, they're thinking, could, could God be doing something now to rescue us from the oppression, not of Egypt, but of the Roman, the greatest nation so far in the world? So when Jesus comes, they're shouting things like, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're really thinking now is the moment that God's going to do something. Expectation is running high. What would they be hoping he would do? Well, by his word, in the same way of Moses, kick the Romans out of Israel. Not like Moses did to take the Israelites out of Egypt, but throw the Romans out, throw off the yoke. And the enthusiastic welcome of the crowd makes it clear that Jesus' words and deeds had aroused the messianic hopes of the people to fever pitch. But they hadn't been paying attention to his words. If they had, they would have known that this would not be working out as they had hoped it would be. And in fact, if they had eyes to see, they would see that. What conquering king in antiquity had ever arrived on a donkey? None. Oh, kings travelled on donkeys, but they always did so in times of peace. Never conquering. So the mere fact Jesus almost casually says to the guys, go and get me a donkey. He's probably seen the chat before. He's probably said, in a few weeks' time, I'll need your donkey. I'll send my disciples to get it. We don't need to have a word of knowledge here, necessarily. It might be, but it could well be. On one of his previous occasions, it's been many times to the temple, that Jesus just said to this guy, in some time, I want your donkey. Can I borrow it? And the guy says, sure, just send your disciples. And that's why it's explained. They were hoping for a deliverance from the oppression of Rome. That Jesus has come to deliver them from the oppression of their sins. They were hoping for a king who would rule the nation. Jesus comes as a king to rule those who would submit to him now. They were hoping for a change in their political and social fortunes. Jesus came to bring a change to their spiritual state. They were hoping to be brought to a place of prominence among the nations. Jesus has come to bring them to God. 
They were hoping that the kingdom of God will come immediately, with no delay, no struggle. Now the good bit happens. Jesus has come, he tells us, to plant the seed of the kingdom that over time it can grow into the largest of the plants. And without wanting to minimise the hard and good work that is done in national and international spheres today, seeking the peace of the world, let's remember that the big issue that God has come to deal with is the problem of the heart, which is the heart of the problem. Oh, lots flow out of that, but without that you have nothing. And we have to be cautious, my friends, living today, not to expect God to be doing things that Jesus clearly showed he was not doing in this present dispensation. They were hoping for a political turmoil, but he didn't give it to them. Because the issue is one of changing people from the inside out. So what's Jesus looking for? Well, since God is omniscient and knows everything, he can't be disappointed in the sense that something catches him by surprise. You and I can be disappointed if we were travelling somewhere and our car had a flat tyre. We'd be disappointed because it's caught us by surprise. God is never disappointed in that way because he knows what's going to happen. But he nonetheless can be disappointed by the reactions of those he comes to. He knows how things will end. He knows how this will end. And this is a deliberate staged entry into Jerusalem. Jesus could have come into Jerusalem in exactly the same way he's come hitherto. He's been plenty of times. Wandered in, wandered out. Wandered in, wandered out. Come up to the Passover. At least two other times before this one. But he chooses to come in a very public and specific way because he's saying something about the way God does things. He's been teaching them that the Messiah, their promised Messiah, must go to the cross and be raised to life. That will be the way by which God will deal with the profound issues of the world. And my friends, we still haven't got it yet, have we? That's still the way God chooses to deal with the issues of the world. Of course he wants us involved in the politics of our nation. Of course he wants Christians in in international events. Of course he wants us involved in changing societies. That's a given. But laying at the heart of it is changed people. The story of the children in chapter 10 represents the attitude a person must have if he is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus takes little children. Children must be seen and not heard. In Jewish society, preferably not seen as well as not heard. And Jesus takes them and says, No, you learn. This is the attitude, something about childlikeness that demonstrates the proper attitude for coming into the kingdom of God. Not the sort of thing you would expect. A man preoccupied with his possessions later on in chapter 10 is told very carefully, if they are what grabs your heart, then you're going to find it hard to get in the kingdom. Jesus is the focus of the kingdom. And blind Bartimaeus, who can't even see him, but standing by the side of the road, hears him go by, cries out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Recognises something. And here's the twist, isn't it? It's a blind man who sees something that other people with sight can't see. One of the twists of the gospel. And Jesus responds in like manner as if he were a king with an entourage, stops the procession, and everyone comes to a halt, turns to talk to him, 
summons him over and grants him his request, just like a king would do. The kingdom centres on the cross of Christ. And Jesus knows, he knows as he goes on the, on the little donkey into Jerusalem, all the crowds are adoring him and praising him. He knows what he's going to face, arrest, brutal scourging and crucifixion. The kingdom must come in the hearts of men before anything can change. And who can believe that Jesus' heart is very heavy at this point? Very heavy. The crowd might well be calling for deliverance and hoping for a miraculous change of fortune in their national life, but it's not going to be accomplished in the way they expect it. And they're going to turn disappointed away from Palm Sunday and in their bewilderment and confusion... Many in the same crowd, not all of them, but many in that same crowd will be calling out a completely different thing on Good Friday because he's disappointed them and they've lost hope in him because he didn't do what they asked. He didn't do what they expected. But he was never going to do that. Their expectation was falsely centred on an unrealistic hope. But for all that, they will call for his crucifixion and turn and see if there's another rescuer waiting in the wings. Jesus' entry did not fulfil any Jewish nationalistic hopes to purge Jerusalem from Gentiles. He brought judgment on a fruitless Israel which had turned God's temple into a den of robbers. He knew that in a few short days he would be presented by some of these crowds to Pilate, beaten, blooded and bound, looking anything but a victor over the enemies of Israel. And that's how it will seem. This week will be a solemn week, as you reflect on it, as you read through the passion narratives, I guess, at some point this week. It will be a solemn week because it's a clash of expectations and people will be hoping that Jesus is going to do what he said he's not going to do. And therefore they miss what he's going to do, which is something deeper and more profound and more wide-ranging. What he's going to do, if they had eyes to see, would be to change the world for good. And it's going to happen, but it's almost as if it's all passed by. Let me refer to Luke's account of this same event in chapter 19. Luke 19, 41 reads, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now there's a thought to conjure with. This is the king coming to his capital city, coming to his focal point, and he stands and weeps. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come when, when you, upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And he's prophesying what happened a few years later when the Romans completely destroyed the temple. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognise because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. 
See, they're looking for God. They're hoping for God. They're expecting God to come. And when he comes, he comes in such a hidden way. They don't recognize him. They miss him completely. He's right there. And they can't see him. And they would turn away and look elsewhere. Because as we celebrate Easter, we realise that what Jesus did actually was the greatest thing in all the world, wasn't it? There could not be a greater moment. Oh, the forces of darkness screamed with delight at the crucifixion of Jesus, thinking they had triumphed, only to discover in a few short hours that the boot was entirely on the other foot. And he triumphed over them in the cross, bringing them to naught. And the devil has found out belatedly that he's undone a can of worms. Far from one man now, full of the Spirit of God, living the purposes of God, the world is full of men and women, full of the Spirit of God, doing the deeds of God. He's not just got one person to handle now, he's got a whole millions of us, isn't that right? He's got trouble on his hands, hasn't he? And he knows it. And he knows his time is short because of this one event. And aren't you glad, my friends, that our eyes have been opened and we did see the moment of God's coming. And we don't sit here and gloat and boast over other people. We just say we want other people to know that. Our prayers and the prayers of so many Christians for this week particularly will be, oh Lord, open people's eyes to see who Jesus really is. Because folk will be coming to our churches, won't they? It's one of those seasons where people who wouldn't normally come feel not obligated, but drawn in some small way. And they will come and listen. And the power of the gospel will affect people. And we'll be praying for them. Won't we? Lord, open their eyes. You have come already. Let them see what you have done. They can be set free. Because the hope of the world lies in a man who came on a donkey and went to a cross, and rested in the tomb, and rose to glory. It's still the hope of the world. It's still the way God will change the world. And you know it, the change of one person can bring profound change to others. As I conclude, can I read you another little story? Just about the change one person can bring into the lives of many other people. Someone whose life has been changed by Jesus, this man on a donkey coming gently, but not mildly as if he's slightly delusional, but actually bringing the real thing. In 1921, Lewis Laws became the warden at Sing Sing Prison. No prisoner, no prison was tougher than Sing Sing during that time. But when Warden Laws retired some 20 years later, that prison had become a humanitarian institution. And those who studied the system say credit for the change belonged to laws. But when he was asked about the transformation, here's what he said. I, all, I owe it all to my wonderful wife, Catherine, who is buried outside the prison walls. Catherine Laws was a young mother with three small children when her husband became the warden. Everybody warned her from the beginning that she should never set foot inside the prison walls. But that didn't stop Catherine. When the first prison basketball game was there, she went, walking into the gym with her three children, and she sat in the stands with the inmates. Her attitude was, my husband and I are going to take care of these men, and I believe they will take care of me. I don't have to worry. 
She insisted on getting acquainted with them and their records. She discovered one convicted murderer was blind, so she paid him a visit. Holding his hand in hers, she said, Do you read Braille? What's Braille? he asked. So she taught him how to read. Years later, he would weep in love for her. Later, Catherine found a deaf mute in prison. She went to school to learn how to use sign language. Many said that Catherine Laws was the presence of Jesus that came alive again in Sing Sing from 1921 to 1937. Then she was killed in a car accident. The next morning, Lewis Laws didn't come to work, so the acting warden took his place. It seemed almost instantly that the prison knew something was wrong. The following day, her body was resting in a casket in her home, three quarters of a mile from the prison. As the acting warden took his early morning walk, he was shocked to see a large crowd of the toughest, hardest-looking criminals gathered like a herd of animals at the main gate. He came closer and noted tears of grief and sadness. He knew how much they loved Catherine. He turned and faced the men. All right, men, you can go. Just be sure and check in tonight. Then he opened the gate and a parade of criminals, the toughest, hardest criminals, walked without a guard the three quarters of a mile to stand in line to pay their final respects to Catherine Laws. And every one of them checked back in. So a man riding a little donkey into a nondescript city sounds like a bit of a pathetic fairy story, really. But the effect of that man's life and death on the lives of other people and the effect of the gift of that man's spirit to those other people is the thing that's really changing our world by changing us and making us like him. There's nothing quite like Easter. Father, we still don't understand the full impact of the incarnation of Jesus Christ and what it meant to you, the Trinity. We still can't understand the full impact of the events of Easter, though we will rehearse them once again and enjoy, enjoy the pleasure of seeing God at work. You, Father, have changed our lives and we will never be the same. Thank you for the impact that by that transformation because of Jesus and because of the gift of your spirit, we in turn can be those who are agents of change in the lives of others. Lord, thank you for all that you have done in our world. Thank you for what you're doing today. And may you continue to bring about the profoundest, deepest change in the lives of those we know, family and friends, communities and neighbours, work colleagues and acquaintances. Father, our prayer this Easter is open eyes to recognise the coming of the Lord. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.